Welcome to the Let Christy Take It podcast. Let Christy Take It would like to thank our sponsors, Irish Woodcraft. Check them out on Instagram and irishwoodcraft.ie for all your guaranteed Irish bespoke furniture needs. On this week's episode, we are joined by Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen is an American actor who has graced the stage, cinema and television with over 200 appearances in movies and TV shows. Stephen's CV is impressive and varied, playing such roles as Ned Ryerson in the classic movie Groundhog Day, Clayton Townley in The Incredible Mississippi Burning, Sammy Yankis in Christopher Nolan's Stunning Momentum, and being pursued by Steven Seagal in The Glimmer Man. Stephen tells us the story behind all these movies and just how he convinced Mr. Seagal to kill him in The Glimmer Man finale. The list of Stephen's credits is massive in both film and TV, and we were delighted to get to chat with a true Hollywood legend. Let Christy Take It are proud to bring you Stephen Tobolowski. If you enjoy our show, please like and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Stephen Tobolowski, writer, actor, director, producer, raconteur. Welcome to Let Christy Take It. We're absolutely delighted to have you. I'm absolutely delighted to be here. This this is uh, amazing. Hands across the ocean. Absolutely. Finally, this computer is worth something that I could actually visit Ireland uh, just sitting at home. Well, we hope to see you back on our, our fair oils really soon. I think so. I think we're, uh, my friend, he says, he, now you tell me if this is a mistake. He says the time to really come to Ireland is at the end of summer, beginning of autumn. That's when we Absolutely. usually get good weather, yeah. The yeah, kids yeah, go back yeah. to there school, the go. sun comes out. Yeah, no kids. Kids are all back in school. That's the sun comes out. <laughs> Excellent. So, Steve, we're going to take you back a little bit, trying to get your, your memories of growing up in Oak Cliff in oh. Dallas, Texas. Wow. Yeah. Um, Oak Cliff, uh, for people who don't know this, this locality, it's about uh, 20 miles or so south of downtown Dallas. And uh, it, it was a really tough place to grow up in, in that there were lots of bullies Lots of bullies, but that was it was good for me in terms of I learned a lot about life uh, just growing up around the people. And, and there were some beautiful people there, too. Absolutely wonderful. I don't mean to put Oak Cliff into a big hole in the ground, but it was a difficult place to live. It's what <clears throat> it's what they called a white flight area. And what that meant was that uh, black people did not live in Oak Cliff. And it doesn't mean that people of color didn't live there because we had people who were Mexican and from South America and from Asia, Indians, American Indians, uh, all sorts. But uh, black people were pretty much kept out of Oak Cliff. And I don't know if there's any law that made this happen or if it was just if they came to look at a house, they made the price three times as much. And it had exactly the opposite effect on me that those city fathers had planned because the only three black people I knew growing up was our maid, Lenora, uh, Alice Nellown. She's the girl I proposed to when I was five years of age. So it was a big deal. Her maid, uh, Claudie and my father's, uh, custodian, uh, James. And these three people were probably the most, magnificent uh lenora our maid was 
her heart was as big as the world. Uh, love was what she was about, and she loved us so ferociously. She'd protect us too. Uh, she ended up when she wasn't babysitting us or cleaning our house, selling Avon products. I don't know if you have that in Ireland. You yeah. go door to door, knock, knock, knock. Would you like this? We do. Yeah, yeah. Avon products. And she did pretty well at it. And they kept promoting her and she would work at her house. They made her a manager. They made her a senior manager. They made her a regional manager. And when I went to college, Lenora came back to our house after many years and said, I would like to buy the house. I would like to buy your house. I'll pay for it in cash. And I want to buy the house and every stick of furniture in it. She said, because it's always been my dream to own the house that I used to work in. And so Lenora handed over a lot of cash to my mother and father and was so strange because whenever I would visit Dallas from that point on, I'd go, I'd go and call up Lenora and say, can I come by the house? And I come by and imagine being now 30 years of age, 40 years of age, and you come back and your house is exactly the same as it was when you were a child. Every stick of furniture was exactly the same. Uh, Lenora didn't recover anything or move anything else in there. Uh, Lenora ended up being a multimillionaire. She ended up owning 22 properties, including businesses, apartment buildings, uh, private homes. And the last time I visited her before she passed away, uh, she said, Stevie, you'd be really proud because what we've done is we've turned your house into a church and we've saved a lot of souls in your house. I thought that'd make you happy. Uh, magnificent person, Lenora. Uh, Alice Nell Allen, I'm, I'm going to just do Alice Nell too because this was remarkable. We had no idea. Nobody has any idea what's happening in the neighbors' homes. We all just thought it was a great, big, happy house. But Alice was beaten by her parents. Uh, her father would drink, would beat her. Mother once came in, as Alice told me, put a gun to her head when she was a little girl and said, say your prayers. This is the last night you're going to be alive. Things like this. So her maid, Claudie, instead of going home, stayed in Alice's room at night. And when those parents would come in to torment her, Claudie would stand between Alice and them and said, don't you touch a hair on this child's head or you're going to have to deal with me. And Claudie protected her uh, throughout all of her early years, teen years. When Alice turned 18, she left the house never to return, never to return. But what she did is she contacted Claudie. Alice became a nurse. And she ended up taking care of Claudie in Claudie's old age. And when Claudie was ill, uh, Alice helped pay for, for Claudie's funeral. And uh, she said to me, the last conversation I had with Alice, is that Claudie was her true mother. It was, it was, but we had woods there, you know? We had woods and trees and nature. And so when I grew up, I grew up with nature. I was a nature boy running in the woods. We had a lot of poisonous snakes, and I thought it'd be really cool if I caught a rattlesnake or a coral snake or a cottonmouth. And we had a club called the Dangerous Animals Club when I was little, like five, six, seven years of age. And we spent all of our days in the woods. 
all of our days. So it was idyllic in that way. And it was difficult in the ways that I've described with, yeah. with some of the people there. Yeah. You just saw what's going on in the so-called dream homes, don't you know? Yeah. No, no, you don't. You don't at all. Stephen, is, is it true that music was your first foray into the arts? <laughs> if you want to call it that. I, I was in, see, I, I realize now looking back, I was quite in love all the time. I proposed marriage to Alice Nell Allen when she was five, and I fell in love with Claire Richards when she, we were eight. And we were in music class together, and Claire got up. I didn't know this girl, and played picking up pawpaws, put them in your pocket. And I had never heard anything so amazingly divine as that. And I thought, I want to play the piano. And uh, <laughs> I used, after Sunday school, I used to go over to my uncle Jaime's house, and they had a baby grand piano. Oh my God, the most wonderful thing in the world. And I, I didn't know how to play the piano at all. I would bang on the bass notes, and then I'd do ding, 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 up high, and then I'd run my fingers up down the keys, driving all of the grown-ups from the room. But my Aunt Hermine, uh, Hermine lived there with Jaime, Uncle Jaime. Hermine sat down at the piano with me and said, Stephen, what are you doing? And I said, well, there's a story, Aunt Hermine. You see, there's a princess, and she's caught way in the top tower of this castle. Ding, ding, ding. And then the monsters and everything, they're down in the basement. And Hermine, after that little, sat down, listened to me bang on her piano, then went to my mother and father and says, you need to get piano lessons for Stephen. He's going to be a pianist. And they got me piano lessons. And, uh, and now, uh, at the age of 72, I'm playing Beethoven and Chopin and Brahms and, and all that because of my dear Anne Hermine. Anne Hermine was famous in the United States because I didn't know this. <laughs> uh, she was famous because she wrote the Equal Rights Amendment for the state of Texas and got it passed. And they asked her to be one of the authors of the National Equal Rights Amendment in America, which did not pass. And uh, so she was. We had no idea that she was this trailblazer of a person, but she was uh, one of the smartest and, again, most courageous people I knew. People tried to kill her because of uh, the equal right. They would throw Molotov cocktails at the house, uh, at her home, you know, all sorts of things. But she put up with it all. She put up with it all. Uh, amazing woman. And my mentor on the piano. Yeah, you ha you're going to have to tell us, we, just from our research, and we do the research on the interviews, how you got Stevie Ray Vaughan to play on your record. That wasn't me. 
That was uh, Bobby Foreman, and we, we we had a very terrible group. We were uh, kind of a folk group. Uh, there are three of us: Bobby Foreman, Jim Rigby, and I. And we we'd sing Michael Row the boat ashore, Hallelujah. And you know we 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 were not very good, but Bobby Foreman actually was enormously talented. He's one of these guys that could play any instrument you put in his hands. Violin, cello, bass, piano, guitar. He was he ended up in the new Christie Minstrels. So he had a future in music. So through some connection that he had, we were asked to do two songs on a album of Dallas garage bands called uh, A New High. Uh, we didn't know this was a reference to marijuana at the time. Uh, we had no idea what high was. <laughs> and and so there's this a new high. We had two songs on there, and we went to record the songs at Tempo 2 Studios. And uh, Bobby said, I remember I was sitting in the back seat. He was in the front. He said, so I've asked Stevie Vaughn, uh, you know, Jimmy Vaughn's brother, if he'd play on the record play lead guitar on our, our songs. I go, wait a minute. Now, Jimmy Vaughn was a kid. I mean, Jimmy Vaughn was our age, but Stevie Vaughn was younger than Jimmy. And I'm saying like, Bobby, how old is Stevie Vaughn? I've seen him in the neighborhood. He's a kid. And Bobby said, he's 14. 14? I said, I'm, I'm like the monkeys, you know, saying, I want to play our own instruments. I, I said, Bobby, we could play the guitar. We could do this ourselves. We, we don't need any Stevie Vaughn playing. And Bobby turned around in the front seat and said, Stephen, shut up. This kid is so good. He's going to make us seem like we know what we're doing. And so we got to Tempo 2 Studios, and Stevie Vaughn at the time, Stevie Ray Vaughn, was sitting there, 14 years old, with his Gibson in his lap. And he came up, he says, so um, you want to kind of tell me, show me what this song is, this first song that we're going to do so I can figure out something I want to do? And sure. So we all got through, we started playing our first song, which is called Red, White, and Blue. So Stevie listened to about eight to 10 seconds. And he said, okay, stop, stop. Okay. So this is like a crappy song. <laughs> so what if I did like a crappy lead and then went into a good lead? And Bobby said, sure, Stevie, that sounds great. So we did like the Beatles used to do. We stood around the microphone, the three of us, and we sang the entire song from beginning to end and did all the harmonies. Then we double-tracked it. We went through it all. So we had all these harmony parts going. So we actually sounded pretty good. And Bobby did all the guitars and all that kind of stuff. Chris Lingwall, uh, he played the drums. Uh, Mike McCullough played the bass. So we had a, a, a sound going. Then Stevie got up and said, so um, – I'll just do that crappy lead into the good lead. And the engineer said, whatever you want, son, whatever you want. So they started playing, and Stevie plays this lead that's kind of a hit, kind of hillbilly, and then goes into this amazing Jimi Hendrix, Eric Clapton kind of lead, like just blazing guitar work. And we're like, huh? Oh, my gosh. And uh, the, the engineer, he's sitting behind the glass. He was like, you know, he was like 
knocking over his pens and cookies too behind the glass. He says, uh, son, uh, that's pretty good. Uh, you want to do another lead? Sure, I can do another one. Stevie stood up and did like another lead where he did the deep bass sounds up into the high screaming trebles and all this kind of stuff. And uh, yeah, that was good, son. Uh, got another one on you? He says, I could do a hundred of these. And so he says, well, just knock a few of them off. So Stevie started playing and I'm now a kind of fly on the wall watching this watching this kid, Stevie Ray Vaughan, and watching the engineer behind the glass, absolutely amazed, like he got his finger stuck in a light socket. He thought, oh my God, this is genius. And I saw him run to the door, open the door, yell something out, but it's a soundproof room, like, hey, hey, you got to come in here. Uh, all these grown-ups start coming in the room and looking out the glass at this kid. And the engineer said, Got anything else? And Steve goes, oh, yeah. And he played another one. And I'm looking at all the grown-up faces behind the glass, and they're in awe. Every one of them looked like they were four years old and just saw Santa Claus. It's The look on their faces was, oh, my God. And I realized it was the first time any of us had encountered genius. And I will never, ever forget that moment. Stephen, was that the moment when you said, I think I'll progress to the stage in drama? <laughs> <laughs> actually, actually, I think you're right. I never thought of that, but I think it's that moment, seeing Stevie Ray going like, well, I can't swim in this pool. That's too many you know, sharks, no, man. no, 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 you know, maybe I need to go another way. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I started doing more drama classes and less music, <laughs> less guitar and whatever. Well, it's a career that's so extensive in drama. You've been in lots of movies and TV. Yeah. You remember that feeling when you booked your first gig acting? Oh, gosh. I, again, you have to think, well, well the, the easy answer is yes, but then you have to think, what is the first gig I had when I was acting? I had one gig when I was, the first professional gig I had was when I was a junior in college. And I was being tortured by our drama teacher. She hated me and would never call on me in class, would never grade my tests, never anything, and never got cast in any of the school plays at SMU. For like uh, sophomore, junior year, she put the kibosh on that. So I went out and got my equity card. At, and in Ireland, you know, that is means you're a professional. And I worked at the one professional theater in Dallas who were always looking for young men to be in these plays. And I made $110 with the provision that I would give uh, the money back to the theater because they couldn't really afford to pay me $110, but they had to make the union happy that I got this money, but I was so proud of that 110. And I was even proud when I gave the check back to the theater, thinking yeah. like, this is a symbiotic relationship. And uh, I became, I had hair back then, I became <laughs> uh, one of the darlings of the Dallas stage. You know, young, I played all the young, you know, importance of being earnest. In fact, when I was in Dublin, 
I was right down the street from the Oscar Wilde statue, just mm-hmm. just walking, just uh, my hotel was just by there, and I would stand in front of that statue in Dublin and look look into his face. What a great statue it is, yeah. and you just try to understand mind meld with somebody that brilliant. The way he used the English language, the way how funny he was and how wise he was. So I, I was big on doing the importance of being earnest. I think I did three productions of it when I was young. Don't move yet, Dan. Stand up, Captain. We've got them. Spectacular stunt, my friends, but all for naught. Turn around, please. Ah, what a pity. What a pity. So, Princess, you thought you could outwit the imperious forces. You idiots! These are not them. You've captured their stunt doubles! Search the area! Find them! Find them! Did my first SAG movie. Uh, when I was, I guess, like a senior in college, my first professional gig. S- but um, the the other milestone, I guess, was when I was doing theater in downtown Los Angeles for $400 a week. Oh, that was great. And uh, I was doing a play with Bill Pullman. And Bill said, well, you know, I'm doing this movie coming up, Spaceballs, and I invited Mel Brooks to see the play. Uh, we're doing. I go, oh, cool. I'd love to meet Mel Brooks. So we, Bill and I did this play. And then afterwards, Mel Brooks came up to me and said, hey, you know, you're pretty good in this play. Maybe there's a part for you in Spaceballs. You want to come in? You want to come in on, you know, Monday? Come in and we'll audition. We'll find something for you in it. I went like, oh my gosh. <laughs> I called my mom and dad. It was like a real, you know, they always felt I would never work in, in showbiz. And here, Right off the bat, Mel Brooks is going to give me a part. The part didn't have a name. It was Captain of the Guard. It didn't have a name, but it was funny. It it had a bit. And I was going to make something like, I want to say like $1,000 for the day. And I'm going like, oh, my God, this is amazing. And so I went Monday to shoot the scene, and they didn't shoot it. And Mel says, well, I guess you got to come back tomorrow. So I came back the next day. They didn't shoot it, nor the next day, nor the next day. It's Thursday. And now it's very late. We're going to close down again, and we're still not going to shoot my one little scene. And I said, this is pretty irritating to the, to the assistant director. He says, why is it irritating? He said, well, I'm supposed to shoot Monday. It's Thursday. He says, how much are you getting paid to do this? He said, I'm getting paid $1,000. He says, so you get $1,000 for every day you're here. And I said, what? <laughs> wait, wait, you mean I'm getting paid for the days I just came here to eat the snacks? And he goes, yeah, every day you show up here, you get a thousand. Oh my God, this is the job for me. They pay you when you don't even work. So mm. that was magnificent. And meeting Mel Brooks was great. And did you get to meet any other cast of Spaceballs? That's one of our favorites here. Uh, you know, John Candy and Rick Moranis. Well, when, when I was there those four days, I met John Candy and Rick Moranis and uh, Daphne Z- Z- Zuniga. Uh, she played the 
gold girl, right? Yeah, the yeah. little golden robot. Uh, and uh, that was pretty much, they were, and Bill Pullman, of course. So that week I was there, those are the people who I met, which was pretty exciting for me because I was a huge John Candy fan. Yeah. But he's dressed up like, like a dog. <laughs> <laughs> hysterical. Yeah. Uh, uh, 80s was a really busy period for you, as well as Spaceballs. You were in another classic, Store Crazy. What was that like to work on? Stir Crazy? Yeah. That was the the Gene Wilder, uh, Gene Wilder yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah. That was one of those shows that I really wasn't sure what I was going to do in that. I, it was one of those little parts, and I, I didn't know what I was going to do. And I think I was in a magic store. My memory is saying like I was in a magic store buying magic and from the person who was playing the salesman at the magic store, he had the good part. So I was just customer, but it was great. Uh, what was, this is something that permeated through my life. It made a huge impression on me. Uh, I had an acting teacher when I was in graduate school, Ed K. Martin, and he said, always say yes. Always say yes to every opportunity you can. They may not all be great opportunities, but say yes, because they could all lead to something. So, and he also said, always go to acting classes, not because you need acting classes, but because you can network in acting classes and see who's casting what. So the first day I went into acting class, it was a Sunday, the first week I was in LA, someone came in and said, we need uh Another, I think the character's name was Dudley Bostwick in uh, Time of Your Life, the play Time of Your Life. All takes place in a bar. We lost our Dudley, and we need someone else. So I raised my hand. I'll do it. I'll do it. So he says, okay, we'll come in and audition tomorrow, Monday, and uh, we open on Friday. So you have four days to learn the part. And so the part of Dudley was – not in the bar. He was outside the bar waiting at a payphone. That's what he did in the play, waiting for his girl to show up and calling her on the phone, please come and see me. It was a story of true love. And he's on stage almost the whole play, waiting for the phone to ring and talking to her on the phone. She hangs up on him once, whatever. So it was pretty easy to learn. We had a pretty good uh, show on what what I guess they call a preview on Thursday, opening night Friday, Saturday was a big day. This was, we, someone came backstage and said, Fran Bascom is going to be in the audience tonight. Now this theater held like 50 people. I mean, it's a tiny theater. Fran Bascom was one of the leading casting directors in Los Angeles. She cast like, all the big shows, all the big comedy shows, everything, dozens of shows. She was the fountain. And so I thought, okay, now see, this really proved the point. I did the job. I am out here. And now Fran Bascom is going to see me Saturday night. So I'm getting ready backstage, come out to the payphone for my first scene, and I'm calling talking to my girlfriend and she's 
saying no, that she isn't going to meet me. And suddenly the payphone falls off of the wall, right? It was hanging up by a nail and it falls on the ground. Now, payphones are very heavy. So <laughs> I end up getting on the ground and I'm like talking to her there and the audience starts chuckling and I'm just on the phone, still on the phone. And I think, okay, well, I'll lift it up in my arm. So I pick the phone up. So I have the whole payphone in one arm and I'm walking around the stage, carrying the phone, talking on the receiver. Now the phone now is not plugged into anything. And as I'm walking back and forth, the wire that went into the receiver from the phone fell out of the phone. So now I'm holding a phone with no wire, a gigantic payphone, which I just throw off stage and I finish the speech and go off in utter humiliation. All this happened and Fran Bascom was in the audience. Fran Bascom was in the audience. <laughs> Monday morning, I got a phone call. This is Fran Bascom's office. We'd like you to come in. I was like, huh? I go in and meet Fran and I sit down and I go, Fran, I have to ask you, why am I here? It was an absolute disaster. It was terrible. The, it was, the audience was laughing. It was, and she says, you are the kind of actor I'm looking for. You didn't quit. Yeah. I'm looking for people who don't quit. And so Fran Bascom was one of the important people in my life when I started out. She would put me in any show that she was doing, if they couldn't cast it, Stephen, can you come down and do this show? And so I got a lot of credits through Fran Bascom and through her friends at the very beginning, all because I said yes to the show <laughs> and <laughs> dropped the payphone. On how, you, how you handled that? You know, it's not yet. Thank God didn't have mobile phones these days, Stephen. <laughs> what would have happened? No. Well, I made the payphone a mobile phone. It was, <laughs> yeah. yeah, way before its time. Your name, please? Clayton Townley, local businessman. Are you, sir, a spokesman for the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan? I told you, I'm a businessman. I'm also a Mississippian and an American. And I am getting sick and tired of the way many of us Mississippians are having our views distorted by you newspaper people and on the TV. So let's get this straight. We do not accept Jews because they reject Christ. And their control of the international banking cartels are at the root of what we call communism today. We do not accept papists because they bow to a Roman dictator. We do not accept Turks, Mongols, Tartars, Orientals, nor Negroes because we're here to protect Anglo-Saxon democracy and the American way. Thank you, sir. Stephen, can we talk about one of the favorite movies here? I like Chris to take a podcast, The Powerful Mississippi Morning, directed by yeah. the sadly deceased Alan Parker. You played Clayton Tony. And I'm also thinking now back to what you said about your aunt and the equality law. What was it like to work on that movie relating now to what you know about your aunt and also what was Parker like to work for? Well, I was supposed to do something, I want to say, like three weeks on that movie. I really only had a couple scenes, the big Ku Klux Klan gathering, and then kind of a little bits and pieces when I get arrested. And they changed my contract. We were shooting in Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, all of those states down there. They were, were shooting all down there in the Deep South, very 
not my favorite place. And they changed my contract to a run of the picture deal because the outdoor Ku Klux Klan meeting was going to have like 2,000 extras. And so they couldn't take a chance on there being any kind of thunderstorm or anything. And in the South, you have these rolling thunderstorms that come in about once every week. And so I was going to be there now instead of three weeks, three and a half months. And so Alan Parker came to me and said, I hear you're interested in directing. Would you like to follow me around and see me do what I do? And I go, sure, Alan. Yeah, sure. So I would follow Alan. He took me to every aspect of making a film, to where the sets are made, the costumes are made, where they're dyed, uh, camera meetings. After about a month and a half of going with Alan around and not working at all, just following him around, he would stop at a camera meeting and go, Stephen, how would you do this scene? How would you shoot this scene? And I go, um, well, I would start with a wide shot and then I'd move in and get close ups. No, no, no. Terrible, terrible idea. Terrible idea. Don't do that. No, awful. And, and it was, uh, it was one of the great experiences of my life. I had no idea the gift Alan had given to me because I was such an idiot. You know, oh, these, most famous directors in the world take always take like newbies around with them and show them what they were doing. Uh, nobody. I it was opening night of Groundhog Day, and uh, Andy McDowell wanted me to take her to the opening night to keep men away from her because I'm apparently a real buzzkill. <laughs> so I take. I, I'm taking Andy inside the theater in Westwood, and there in front of the theater is Alan Parker. And I let Annie, Andy go inside, and I go, Alan, I am such an idiot. I had no idea the gift you were giving to me. I, I feel like such a fool. You, you know, thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, stop it, stop it, stop it. You know, he goes, stop it. Enough of that. Stop that. You just better be good in this movie. <laughs> and I said, I hope I am too, Alan. Uh, he was a great mentor to me doing Mississippi Burning. And I, I found out later that that was kind of his calling. Uh, you know, Sir Alan ran the school for young directors in England. And, uh, he he always took people under their under his wing. Uh, great man. So so one of the great moments of Mississippi burning that goes back to my past. So we finally are shooting the Ku Klux Klan scene. We have about two thousand extras, and about a thousand of these extras used their Ku Klux Klan cards as their ID to work on the film. So we are dealing with a lot of real Klansmen here, hardcore racists. Uh, we, I, I started shooting probably around 11 at night. Whenever you see a movie scene that happens at night, it means usually they were working all night long. So I'm shooting about maybe two, three hours 
And the AD, the assistant director, says, Mr. Tobolowsky, you need anything? I said, well, I could use something to drink. I could use something to drink. And he calls out to the craft service kid, you know, and he goes, craft service, get over here, get over here. And it's a little black boy, you know, maybe 12 years of age there with his mother and father. <clears throat> you know, I called you here. Mr. Topolowski, he needs something to drink. He needs some. Mr. Topolowski, what do you need? And I said, well, uh, I'll have tea. Tea. He wants tea. And do you want any sugar with it? No, no, I'm fine. And do you want anything to eat? Do you hear the order? And he, he yells at this little boy, Joshua. He says, jo Joshua, you hear what he wants? You hear what he wants? You go and you get that and you be back here pronto. You understand? And uh, Joshua goes, yes, sir. Yes, sir. And he starts walking back to the craft service. And all these clans people are standing up in front of this little kid. And Joshua stops and turns back at me and says, Mr., don't worry about me. I'm going to be okay. You just keep doing what you're doing because you're doing a real good job. And he walks through. And from where I'm standing on stage, that army of clan people just parts. And this little 13-year-old boy walks right up that sea of hatred to get me my tea and my grapes, <laughs> whatever I needed. It was such a powerful visual statement, a learning thing for me about it doesn't Courage comes in all sorts of different packages, and we're used to it from like Steven Seagal movies about it being like, no, it's this 13-year-old boy who's not afraid, and he's going to walk through this crowd at two in the morning to get me a cup of tea. Uh, just amazing, amazing. Wow. Oof. Stephen, I, I, I really don't want to be asking questions that might you know, evoke any more emotion that, than it's needed. <laughs> But I really wanted to ask you um, about Great Balls of Fire, not too much about the production or working with Dennis Quaid as Jerry Lee. You played Judd Phillips along with Trey Wilson, who played Sam Phillips. Yeah. And I kind of regret, I know I'm going to regret asking this question, but I really wanted to know, he, he, he died so suddenly, right? Um, yes. How much of an impact did that have, a, have on you and also the production? Wow. wow. He, he was, was a great, a great <laughs> actor. Great actor and... And he was at the height of his career. And we were working in Memphis. And then we were going to leave. Some of us were going to leave and go to London for about three weeks to finish the movie. So Trey and I finished our brother scene. And we shot his side of the scene where I'm talking to him from London. So I'm just there in Memphis. And I'm feeding him lines. And they film his side of that phone conversation. And that was the last thing he filmed on the movie. And he was going to go to New York city to be with his wife. And then he was going to go down to new Orleans to start Miller's crossing new movie. So, you know, he was working boom, boom, boom. <clears throat> now what, when we were in Memphis is I, when I think of Dublin, I just think of all the music, all the music. Uh, Memphis is, like that. Music on every corner, everywhere. And Kiva Recording Studios is where Eric Clapton had worked on Layla, 
some of Layla. It was a very important music studio, and we basically had the keys to that place, working on Great Balls of Fire. Uh, Joe Mulherin, who was the head of um, the, the music for the show, said we could go in and do whatever we want. And so a lot of times me and Jimmy Vaughn, who was in the movie, would go in there and we'd smoke some reefers and, you know, make up songs and record them all and just, you know, and then go back at dawn and go back to our hotel room. We, we were young and we could do things like that. I, I take it you knew what the word high meant then. <laughs> yes <laughs> i had figured it out at this time and uh i i remember i was helping trey carry some of his stuff to his car at the end of that scene and he had a box of tapes from kiva recording studio i said what is this he says well i have recorded all of my songs I, I'm a songwriter, you know, I record made a lot of folk songs in my life and I thought since we have access to Kiva, I'm going to record everything I've ever written. And and I said, "Oh, really?" He says, "Yeah, I'm just on my way now. I'm going to go to Kiva. I'm going to put these in in our studio studio too, just put them in there and uh then I'll catch plane, go back to New York, then on to New Orleans and Miller's Crossing." Well, he didn't. Trey went back to New York, had a headache, went to bed, and his wife went in and found that he had a cerebral hemorrhage and died in bed. Now, I get the phone call at the beginning of January. We're about to fly to London now to finish this. And uh, the woman on the other end of the line was crying so hard. I mean, she couldn't really speak you you couldn't hear make sense but she was just saying trey died and i'm like oh. so we have to finish the movie i go to london and now i have to finish my half of the scene <clears throat> with the phone call with trey so they have the picture of trey uh his film showing me and everybody is like in tears and you know, I'm trying just to get through my part. Hey, brother, well, everything's going to be fine. You know, I'll tell you how our Jerry Lee does here in London. You know, wish us well. All right, you know. And we did a memorial service after we finished that scene. Trey's wife was called in from New York, and the whole cast was sitting around on the ground. Uh, Dennis Quaid and Winona Ryder, everybody was sitting around. And the little speaker was in the center of the room where we were talking to Trey's wife. And she was devastated. She was in tears. And it was difficult for her to even speak. And she said, you know, the one regret I have is that Trey was a great songwriter. And now no one will ever hear his songs again. And I'm sitting there about to explode. I said, no one knows. I He recorded the songs. He recorded every one of them, and they're at Kiva Recording Studios in Memphis, Tennessee, in Studio 2 in the bottom shelf. And all of Trey's music is there. It's there. And I realized this idle conversation I had with Trey going out to the car. Who knew it would have such ramifications? And I saw her again. Uh, several years later, and she said she still can't get over 
the riches from Trey's songs that whenever she misses him too much, she just listens to some of those recordings. Oh, amazing. Well, there's still lots of fans of, of Trey. To me, yeah. he'll always be Nathan Arizona. Yeah. Every, every time I think of that's all I, you know, <laughs> God damn. Phil? Hey, Phil? Phil? Phil Connors? Phil Connors, I thought that was you. Hi, how you doing? Thanks for watching. Hey, hey. Now, don't you tell me you don't remember me, because I sure as heck fire remember you. Not a chance. <laughs> Ned! Ryerson! Needle nose Ned, Ned the head, come on, buddy, Case Western High! Ned Ryerson, I did the whistling belly button trick at the high school talent show. Bing! Ned Ryerson got the shingles real bad senior year, almost didn't graduate. Bing! Again! Ned Ryerson, I dated your sister Mary Pat a couple times till you told me not to anymore. Well? Ned Ryerson? Bing! Bing! <laughs> so did you turn pro with that belly button thing, Ned, or No, what? Phil, I sell insurance. What a shock. Do you have life insurance? Because if you do, you could always use a little more. Am I right or am I right or am I right? Right, right, right. Ned, I would love to stand here and talk with you, but I'm not going to. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's all right. I'll walk with you. You know, whenever I see an opportunity now, I charge it like a bull. Ned the bull, that's me now. You know, I got friends of mine who live and die by the actuarial tables, and I say, hey, it's all one big crapshoot anywho. Tell me, have you ever heard of single premium life? Because I think that really could be the ticket for you. Oh, God! It is so good to see you. Uh, what are you doing for dinner? Something else. It's been great seeing you, Needlehead. Take care. <laughs> Watch out for that first step. It's a doozy. Well, I, I want to kind of take it on a more positive note. You did mention Groundhog Day. And, you know, it, it's, it is probably, if not your most memorable role, but probably one of the most cinema's most memorable roles of Ned Ryerson. Yeah. Uh, directed by Harold Ramis. Classic, classic movie. Can you tell us the process of how you got that gig? Oh, God. That was that was a terrible story. That... Uh, I I no I uh, I was doing a movie at the time uh, with Kurt Fuller, and Kurt F Fuller and I we were playing gangsters, and he was playing a gangster who was deaf and mute, and so we both uh, Columbia Studios put us both into school to learn sign language of the deaf. So the gimmick of the movie was I would always sign to him. We were heavies. You know, we beat people up. I would always sign to him what we were going to do, and he would sign to me. And so we took these classes together. We end up shooting in Paris, California, which is kind of a gang town and where they have the hot air balloons. Uh, and it was the one time in my career that for some reason the producers put me and Kurt in the same bedroom. We're on location in Paris, like about two hours outside of L.A., in a motel, sleeping in the same room. I, I'd never have heard of such a thing ever again. And so we're, we're, he's looking up at the ceiling. I'm looking at the ceiling, and it's, it's dark. We finished day's work. So Kurt goes, so what do you got going? Got anything happening after this? 
And I knew that actors don't want to hear anybody saying that they're working, <laughs> that someone else is working. I said, well, Kurt, no, you know, you know, just, you know, uh, not, nothing much, nothing much. But I had, in fact, uh, my agent wanted me to go in and read for Ned Ryerson, but I didn't. I didn't tell Kurt that. And 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 I said, "Well, Kurt, do you have anything cooking?" He goes, "Yeah, yeah. Um, see, I'm a personal friend of Harold Ramis, and uh, I'm playing uh, Ned Ryerson, a real crazy character in this new movie, Groundhog Day." And I'm sitting there looking at the roof, going like, "Oh no." This story is going to have a very bad ending one way or another. Or even, I cannot think of a way this story can possibly have a good ending. So I didn't say anything from then on, and I get a call back. I get a call back. So I drive the two hours, 40 minutes back to Los Angeles, meet with Harold Ramis, read for Ned Ryerson again. And on the way home, I get the phone call. We didn't have iPhones back then, but we had these kind of Air Force flip phone kind of things. And I heard that I got the part. And I arrived back in Paris, California, and Kurt had found out I got the part. And he felt so betrayed and so angry, and rightfully so. You know, somebody wasn't square with him, and that was terrible. And so I went right after I finished that movie and i went up to woodstock illinois and started shooting groundhog day and bill murray and i shot the the first streets the street scene first up first day my call was 6 30 in the morning now the one thing that's really interesting about groundhog day i think is that harold ramus had not decided what the day of the movie would be and i mean meteorologically because the day has to be exactly the same over and over and over again. So Harold Ramis hadn't decided, so he had Bill and I shoot that first street scene in every weather condition. So we didn't have a schedule. If it started to rain, we would get, uh, the ADs would say, Stephen and Bill, come down to Main Street. Let's do the scene in the rain. When it snowed, we were outside Chicago snow. Come on, let's do the street scene in the snow. In the end, Harold Ramis chose the gloomy day to be the day that was repeated because there are plenty of gloomy days <laughs> up in Illinois, let me tell you. And then when the snow falls near the end is when time starts again. Bill and I shot that street scene so many times. It was just like Groundhog Day, you know, over and over and over again. It, it, it was amazing. And I think... Movies that have a little bit of chaos to them have a good chance of being good or a disaster. But Groundhog Day had that bit of chaos in that we really didn't know what we were going to shoot next. Nope, everybody had to be ready to go any moment. And it turned out to be just really a terrific movie. And certainly Bill's performance, I think, is one of the great, great comic performances of all time. It, it's amazing because... Um, Harold Ramis told I asked him after our first couple takes on the street with Bill, and I go like, "Well, Harold, I'm kind of broad on this, you know. You, you know, my part you, it kind of would play in the Roman Colosseum. I, I mean, am I too big?" And Harold said, "Stephen, 
you are the spice in the stew. You could do whatever you want. Bill is the stew. He has to play it straight. So in a scene, you have to decide if you are the stew or the spice in the stew. So Stephen, don't worry. Do whatever you want. So that's what we did. And, and, but the thing that Bill did was so amazing is he was able, his character was able to go back and forth by being the stew and the spice of the stew. Because right after he meets me in that particular scene, he was the world. He was the stew. And I was the spice. I was crazy one. Right after that, he goes to the diner, and there he is with all the food there, drinking coffee out of the – he's the spice in the stew, and Andy is the straight person. She is the stew. So he was able to switch back and forth. Just wonderful. Groundhog Day is ingrained in the minds of all movie fans. And it would be fair to say that it's even eclipsed the actual Groundhog event. <laughs> <laughs> when did you realize, Stephen, that this just how beloved that this movie was? Uh, what us- the usual yardstick is: a movie opens second week, it usually pulls in fifty percent less than it did first week. That's the usual standard. So, Groundhog Day opened to moderately good reviews, and second week the attendance went up and the third week it went up and I got a call from Trevor Albert, our uh, Trevor Albert, our producer, the fourth week, he says, Stephen, I think we've got a hit because now we're making a lot more money than we did the first three weeks. It, it's people have heard about it and they're coming to the movie. And I knew it was enormously successful when, it's the first time in my life that art usurped reality because people think Groundhog Day is the politicians say it. Uh, every, oh, it's like Groundhog Day all over again. You know, Groundhog Day has nothing to do with the repeated event. But the movie being the day repeated now in colloquial jargon to say it's like Groundhog Day, everybody knows that they're talking about the same old, same old over and over and over again. It's become part of the zeitgeist, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And, and of course, it ha- the real Groundhog Day has nothing to do with that. <laughs> Was there any uh, second thoughts about revisiting the character for the uh, Super Bowl ad you did with Bill Murray? Uh, <laughs> not from my agent. <laughs> and, you know, I was doing a one day at a time at the at the time, and I was going like, well, you know, this show is very important to me. And I, the, one of the vice presidents of Sony was standing next to me. It says, well, what is it, Stephen? Oh, they want me to go leave now, uh, go to Chicago, do a Super Bowl commercial where I'm Ned Ryan. And she said, go. <laughs> if you didn't go, I would kick you off of this lot. You've got to go and do this. Thank you. And I go, oh, okay. I thought you'd be upset. Okay, I'll go. And that doing the Super Bowl commercial is when COVID hit America. And it was the day Kobe uh, Bryant died. So I flew to Chicago. I did the scene, the commercial with Bill. Very talented people shooting that commercial. Amazing, talented people doing commercials. Uh, the directors and the 
tech people are so good, you know, because they have to do it so quickly. I'm coming back. I go to Chicago and I see all these people running around O'Hare Airport wearing masks. And then I see Chinese people running down the corridors, all with masks running in the airport. I'm going like, what is going on? What's happening? This is weird. I had no idea what was happening. But it was apparently the last people that were able to get out of Hunan, China, before they put the embargo in, in the United States saying no, no Chinese could come here. These were the last people that could get out. And so COVID started then, and then we landed and heard the news about the death of Kobe. So it was as bad a weekend as it could be, except that I did get to see Bill again, and we did get to do the commercial. But from then on, it was just nightmare city. I don't know how badly Ireland was hit, but certainly everything in the United States shut down. It was terrible. Stephen, although you're known predominantly for playing good guys, you have played a few bad guys, uh, one of which was Christopher Mainyard in The Glimmerman, co-starring the martial artists Steven Seagal and Keenan Ivory Wayans. What was that experience like? Oh, it was insane. I had That was the craziest thing I could think of was that show. I had to shoot the first day. Not only that, first shot up, first day. John Gray was the director, who was a sweet guy and he was one of the first people that after mississippi burning came out i was at an ice cream parlor and he introduced himself hello i'm john gray and i just i'm a director someday i want to work with you because i love mississippi burning i, I go well thank you mr gray thank you so anyway i show up here first person there on the set go to my little trailer and john comes into my trailer says we have a problem and i i go what Steven Seagal has had a spiritual awakening of some sort, and he doesn't want to kill you. He feels like it's putting bad stuff into the world. And I go, well, yeah, a lot of Steven Seagal movies put bad <laughs> stuff into the world. I mean, that's what people pay him to do. And, and he said, well, listen, do not get into a conversation with him. Whatever you do, don't get into a conversation. So we go in, Steven shows up, we block the scene. And everything. And then, you know, he, he kind of comes up and I don't know about this scene. I think we're really putting a lot of tragic things into the world. I, I just don't like it. I just, I don't think I should kill you in this scene. Now I'm a serial killer in this show. And, and, you know, I, it didn't like, um, you, you know, at the mall or something, I'm, uh, I have a priest and I got a gun to the priest's head and I'm screaming, I'm going to blow his brains all over the place. And, and I go, Stephen, you know, I think generally you would be right, but, and John Gray is standing behind Stephen Seagal and signaling me <laughs> madly, don't open your mouth. And I'm saying, Stephen, I think I am trapped in this body. As a serial killer, I, I, my life is bent on destruction of other people's lives. I think it could help my reincarnational development if you killed me, and then I'm free of the shackles of my sin and of my violence and viciousness, and I could come back as something more constructive to the world. And he goes, okay. That makes sense. 
That makes sense. So anyway, I end up having the priest. They shoot me. My They rigged my shirt to where my whole chest explodes when he shoots me with the gun. Like the ribs come like, boom, like blood all over the kid. And I'm thinking like, okay, I'm done. That's great. I get a phone call from John Gray about two months later. We've got a problem. I'm thinking like, how could we possibly have a problem? I'm in the can. I'm done. He says, Steven Seagal was improvising in a later scene and said, thank God I didn't kill that guy at the church. <laughs> and I want to know if you could go in and looping and make it, because we can't cut around that of him saying that. So can we add something to vocally to indicate that you're still alive? So I go into looping and they have the film up there that I'm watching. And then in slow motion, this bullet hits my chest <laughs> explodes blood everywhere. Organs flying out everywhere. I fall out of frame as his gun smokes and, and John Gray says, now, if you could say something right here, you know, right when you fall out of frame. So I'm falling out of frame. It's like, oh, oh, you, you'd miss me by that much. You know, you know, I don't know what I could possibly say. You, you know, I've, I'm exploded. And uh, so I, I try a whole bunch of different things. Finish me off, you son of a bitch. Finish me off. Don't leave me like this. Kill me. Go ahead. Kill me. All this is off camera. And Keenan Ivory Wayans is looking at this and he goes, man, now we've entered into the realm of high comedy. <laughs> I, 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 think, I think the when I saw the Glimmer Man, I don't think they use any of my dialogue. I, I, I don't think they use any of that stuff I did. They just had me get shot and fall out of frame, assuming that the audiences are not going to hear I'm glad I didn't kill that guy in the church. I don't know. I don't think they ever solved the problem, but that was, oh my gosh. Stephen, another classic film, uh, Memento. How did yes. you get involved with that? And what was it like working with Stephen Olin and his directing style? Uh, Christopher uh, Nolan, Christopher Nolan, excuse me. Chris, yeah, Chris. And and his, his brother uh, was the screenwriter on it. Chris and his brother were the screenwriter on it. And it was... It was a great experience, and uh, I, I remember I went in to audition for Chris, and he's, he's, if you remember the part, there really isn't a lot for me to do, and Chris said, like, well, there, there isn't much for you to audition with. I said, no, uh, I'm not going to read anything from the script, but I wanted to meet you and tell you this. Now, the, if people don't know, the the essential part of, of uh, Chris's movie is amnesia. You know, Leonard, the, the main character, uh, has amnesia, and he doesn't quite know where he is. So I, I say to Chris, I said, when people read this script, everybody is going to want to be in this movie. The script is so good. And you'll have a lot of people to read for Sammy Jenkins, but I promise you I will be the only person you read that actually has had amnesia. And he says, you've had amnesia? 
And I said, yeah, I had a kidney stone and the hospital wanted to use an experimental drug on me that they were using on big guys. So I'm like 6'3 and 200 pounds. So they would give this drug instead of ether or whatever to knock people out. They give them this drug and they experience the pain, but then they forget it. It gives you amnesia. And so they can tell a big guy, walk in, get on the operating table, put your hands by your side, and you'll do it. And then you'll forget instantly where you are and what you're doing. So I told Chris the story of my amnesia and got the part. So that that I love. But boy, was that script good. It was amazing. Just reading that script, I went like, wow, this is something. Brilliant. I mean, uh, Guy Pierce came out of nowhere. I mean, he, he would be, he would have, he would have been more famous over in the U in Ireland for an Australian uh, soap opera called Neighbors, and then he got the LA Confidential gig, and then Memento. So he is he stratospheric. Yeah, strata. And what a, you know, I always find a lot of success for films is like who is at the head of of the ship, and. And he was at the head of the memento ship. He was such a bright light on set, so funny, so generous with his time and with his talent, uh, kind, funny. It, it just made you want to come to the set every day. It is, it is what a fantastic guy. Yeah, and that came across because the, the soap opera he was on, I think celebrated its 40th anniversary recently, and he went back and did a few days in a final episode. Uh-huh. Yeah, so you know, it shows yeah. that he didn't forget. Yeah, no, he's fantastic, fantastic person. Just loved working with him. And Stephen, you mentioned how good Alan Parker was. Was there any other directors who are really collaborative or great to work with or you'd love to work with again? God, you know, Ridley Scott, I did Thelma and Louise with. He was magnificent. Uh, amazing. Uh, a friend of mine at the time was Sigourney Weaver, and Sigourney had done Alien with him, which oh, I was not prepared for. You know, oh, Sigourney, we're going to go see your space movie, Alien. It's going to be so fun. We'll go there. We'll have popcorn and everything. I went there. It's like, oh, my God, get me out of the theater. So terrifying. I go, oh, God, just terrifying. And she... She said, well, Stephen uh, Ridley Scott likes to act like, uh, you know, he he handles actors pretty much like a general handles their officers. You know, he he wants a lot of input from the actors. You know, how, we, how would you like to do this? How would you like to do that? And um, I remember first day in Thelma, I was very nervous. First day of Thelma and Louise, we were shooting in L.A., at Thelma's house. And it was when the FBI comes in. I was head of FBI in that. And F we're supposed to come in the door and, and uh, Ridley had a meeting with everyone. And he went by, so what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? I, I didn't know what I was going to do. So I just said to him, well, I'll take over the room. I'll come in and take over the room. And he kind of looked asconce and went like, uh, oh, okay. We'll see. We'll we'll see. So anyway, we rehearsed, and I went in and thought, like, I don't know how to take over a room. I don't even know what that means. So I tried to do things I saw on the TV show Law and Order. 
You know, I just pretend I was, okay, uh, you go over there and wiretap that phone and you go over there and you do this and you go over there and, you, you know, do that. And I was going, and then I'd look at Ridley and he's just like rolling his eyes in his head going like, I don't know. Well, let's just try take and see where we're at. So I go outside and the little voice in my head is going like, Stephen, that was so bad. I mean, not specific. And you're, you're imitating law and order in a Ridley Scott film. Like you don't know what you're doing. You know, come in and, and, and then I hear the AD on the other side. They're okay. Camera's ready. Camera's ready. Oh, no, no, no. What am I going to do? And I thought, well, Stephen, what do you do when you have meetings and you're directing a play? You don't go in and say to the costume designer, Mary, design some costumes. Peter, Put those lights up and design those lights. They're they know what their job is. Snacks is what I do. I do snacks when I direct. You know, I go like, oh yeah, yeah. You know, I stop at Starbucks and I get a big thing of coffee, and then I go, I get muffins, and you know, I do all this stuff. So then I'm hearing the AD on the other side, camera roll and action, and I come through the door. And I go, okay, everyone, I'm going on a deli run now, and I'm going to have my usual turkey with uh, coleslaw on it. And and everybody, all my FBI guys are just staring at me like this. Now, anybody want anything? And this guy goes, uh, corned beef? Okay, corned beef. And I pull out a thing and start writing corned beef. Also, there's coffee place nearby. Anyone, muffins, coffee, cappuccinos? I'll have a cappuccino if you're going. Yeah, okay, I'll do the. So all the I take orders from all the FBI guys and say, okay, I'll be back uh, when I'm when I'm back. And I walked out the front door, closed the door, and Ridley Scott goes, cut, print, perfect. That's what we want. And mm. and so from then on, Ridley was going like, so what are you going to eat in this scene? <laughs> you know, and we would talk. Well, I'll have a ham sandwich, I guess. But boy, that was a terrific movie. And nobody, there's an example of a movie, Thelma and Louise. It was so iconic here in America. I don't know if it was in Ireland, but huge. Yeah, absolutely. Huge. And and you're making you're always making these movies and they all feel the same. Groundhog Day, Thelma and Louise feel the same as the ones you do that are disasters. Yeah. You know, they all feel the same when you're in the middle of it, making it. So you just have to do the best you can and uh, pray, <laughs> pray that it turns out to be one of the good ones. And, and the movie is still being discovered because I've got a, a, an 18 year old daughter who only watched the film Tam and Louise for the first time before Christmas and only because she's a big fan of Brad Pitt. And she hears, hears oh. uh, Brad Pitt's, you know, has his top off, but she loved the movie. Absolutely loved it. Can you believe that? So it's like, I'm thinking like, I meet this guy sitting next to me is somebody named Brad Pitt, blonde guy, all this stuff. Then uh, he's like, uh, Mr. Tobolowsky, uh, my chair is a lot, is very comfortable. Do you want to switch chairs with me? Uh, well, I'm okay, Brad. Now I'm going to go to the snack table. Would you like some tea? I could get you a tea. I can get you a muffin. I'm fine, Brad. I'm fine. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, Mr. Tobolowsky, I said, Brad. Every time you come over and talk to me, I feel older and uglier. <laughs> Please, you know, I'm okay. I'll be fine. Then I saw the movie and went like, oh, my God, a star is born. What 
an actor. What a performance. And of course, he's lived up to that. It, and it doesn't matter if it's World War, World War Z with the zombies or if it's Babylon, which is out now, yeah. or if it's uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. What a Brilliant. performance. What a performance. What a performance. Yeah. It doesn't matter because he's so good in all of it. He's just one of the best I've ever seen. Stephen, what's the toughest show you've ever been on, whether it's a movie or a TV set? Toughest show. <sighs> oh, man. I. You know, the the things that are always tough are when the movies aren't working right or you're, you're in a show and, and something's not happening, something's not working. I, I guess one of the... One of the bad bad ones was um, Funny About Love. Uh, it was originally called, I think, Crazy About Love with Gene Wilder, and I played his sidekick. And uh, uh, I don't think Gene liked me. I'm not sure what happened, but there was some falderall there in that we were going to be shooting on the boat that goes all the way around Manhattan. And so... I was told to be in front of my hotel at nine o'clock and I would be picked up, taken to the boat. And then I'm on the boat all day. <clears throat> well, I come down and the guard at the, you know, the, the fellow who blows the whistle on the, on the sidewalk. He says, what are you waiting for? I said, well, I'm waiting for the bus to take me to the boat. He says, oh, they left like half an hour ago. They were here at 830. I said, well, I was told to come here at nine. Oh, no, no, no. They're long gone. I'm going like, oh, my God. You know, because if you miss the boat, then you miss everything. Yeah. So I got in a cab. I went to the Carlisle Hotel where Gene Wilder was staying. And I wait in the lobby and, and said, is Gene Wilder there? And they, yeah, yes, he's coming. His car is out front. Gene comes out of the elevator and says, Gene, I have to go with you because they left me. He says, you can't come with me. You can't come in my limo. And I go, well, I am. <clears throat> I have to. I have no other way to get to the set today. So my apologies. I will never do it again, but I have to do it. <clears throat> I think, uh, you know, we ended up on the boat. Everybody was very surprised I was there, which made me think it was kind of like subterfuge, like they wanted me to miss the boat and then get fired. But what they did is uh, they pretty much just cut me out of the movie. You know, so whatever it was, it was not good. That was a bad situation, you know. Oh. Stephen, we're talking to, to friends and our children about that we were going to be interviewing you. The first thing, believe it or not, that definitely my daughter said was Glee. Ah, not the Goldbergs, not Glee. Glee and your yeah. character's name was Sandy Ryerson. Yeah, Sandy Ryerson. I uh, <laughs> yes. How will you guys have any clue? of the impact that TV show was going to have or how big it was going to get. Not at all. Not at all. And uh, it was uh, it was an amazing thing. I, uh, I had just broken my neck in Iceland 
uh, riding a horse on the side of an active volcano. You know, what could possibly go wrong there? And I was in a neck brace, and I was near the end of the two months in which the doctor said I'd have to be in a brace. And so they put me in a kind of portable brace that I could take off to take a shower in and whatever, but it was still broken. I still couldn't drive, anything like that. And they tell me, Tuesday, you're going to go read for Glee. So I go into the casting office at Paramount, and the room is empty. And I'm, I go and sit on the couch, and I start thinking, like, should I lie about this broken neck? I mean, it's, it's kind of a buzzkill if you go into the producers and director with a broken neck and say, like, hello. So since it was one of those collars that I could take off, if I didn't move my head much, I wouldn't die. So I took the brace off my neck and <laughs> stuck it under the couch. And the assistant director came in and said, oh, Stephen, we're so sorry. We, we called you in on the wrong day. You're supposed to come tomorrow. Uh, Ryan is, is, is doing Nip Tuck today. But tomorrow we're doing Glee. So I, thought, I go like, I have just been given a reprieve by the Almighty. And I pulled the brace out and I said, listen, now I get a chance to not lie on the first date. I was going to take this off and not tell anybody about my broken neck. I couldn't drive a car, so my wife drove me home. And then the next day, she drives me back. And now the dressing room looks exactly like, I mean, the casting office filled with people. People singing, people dancing, you know, tons of people auditioning for Glee today. And they call me in and I wear my brace. And uh, Ryan is, uh, Ryan Murphy, the, the executive producer, says, So I see you consider yourself the luckiest man on earth that uh, you uh, get to come back again with your broken neck. And I go, Yeah, this is. This is the story, guys. And I have all the producers there. This is the story. I haven't, I broke my neck in five places. The doctor said it's a fatal injury. Obviously, it's not. I'm near the end of the healing process. But what I'm going to do is this is the first audition I've had in months. I'm going to take my brace off. If it's too much for me, I will pick my brace up, walk out of the room. No harm, no foul. That's it. I'm gone. If it's not, if I stay here and do the scenes, it means I'm fine and I'm okay. And you'll know that I didn't lie to you on the first date. And so I take it off and all the producers are like, <laughs> you know, they're like, oh my God. And we did like two or three scenes with Sandy Ryerson. And then I sang a song and then I left. And two weeks later, I heard that I got the part. And it was, it was one, tell the truth, you know, yeah. it, it, that worked out well. But it was a great show, but it'll always be forever tainted because of uh, Corey yeah. and his death. And you know, he, what a wonderful guy, wonderful guy. And it just always breaks my heart when I think of this. But Leah, Leah's... I'm Broadway now doing Funny Girl. And, right. you know, Matthew Morrison, you know, was always Hollywood. I mean, Broadway's number one leading man. 
in leading tenor. So it was just great to meet all these people that now are fairly ensconced still on Broadway. Brilliant. And Stephen, one of the other TV shows that, in our opinion, is up there with Sopranos, Deadwood. What was it like and working with David Milch? Well, we had, uh, David had two film crews working, and one of the film crews was the same film crew that I shot Mississippi Burning with. That's the level of quality people around the camera that David Milch had. And and David always wanted to shoot with uh, natural light. And so uh, every day our call time was 5 a.m., something like that, to where it would be black, pitch black. You get dressed, put on your makeup, all that kind of stuff. And then as soon as you have sunlight, you start shooting because he that's all he wanted was natural light. And then you shoot all day, and uh, he never washed your costumes. Costumes never got washed because he wanted the stains to be consistent because they were fair. Ian McShane, oh, my God. So his was really rank. And and everybody, after a few months, it was like it was ripe on that set, incredibly ripe. But <clears throat> we all knew we were doing something special. We all knew the show was special. And it was a beautiful experience for me, working with so many talented people. It's just amazing cast and amazing people behind the cameras, just costume, makeup, uh, set design, just amazing, wonderful. Brilliant. And you have your own podcast, Stephen. What made you oh, start yeah. one of those? How would you get the time to even do one? Well, that's when I broke my neck. You know, I broke my neck and the doctor said it was a fatal injury. So I thought like, well, what would be some stories I would tell my kids so they would know something about their dad? So I started writing these stories. Just about that time, uh, a student at Harvard, David Chen, called me on the phone and he said he loved Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party, the movie where that Robert Brinkman shot where I'm just telling stories from morning to night on the day of my birthday. And uh, it, David said, do you have, I would like to do a podcast maybe of you doing your stories. I said, well, it just so happens that I'm, I'm uh, writing stories now. And he said, well, let's collaborate. And so we did. And I ended up, now we have 99 podcasts, and you could hear them all at uh, tobolowskifiles.com, and it's all free. You know, David and I did it for free. 99 episodes that over here in the States have been on uh, NPR and PRI radio and been all over the world with, with, with this podcast now, and still my kids have not listened to it. <laughs> the whole Same point here, Stephen, Stephen we, the feel, whole point. we feel your pain you have no idea so this the podcast just was true stories from my life that I wanted to share with my kids so some movie stories some stage stories TV but also me falling in love with Alice Nell Allen and me and Lenora our maid and uh, my aunt Hermine and the first girl I fell in love with Beth and Claire Richards and the piano all of these things. I remember I did some live shows at Harvard and live stories. And this one woman came up to me and said, 
I'm Claire Richard's daughter, and I'm here now in Cambridge, and I wanted to say thank you because I never knew anything about my mother's past except through your podcast. That, like the stories you tell about Claire, I, I know who she is as a little girl now. And so, so the, you know, it's it's all been very good. The podcast has been a great. Now, the last two years or so, I haven't really been able to do any new ones because I'm a new grandfather. Oh, congratulations! So I got a lot of baby duty. Yeah, thank you. And and now we got another baby just born like last week. So we got super super baby duty. We were very lucky to get you, Stephen, all those duties. <laughs> Stephen, you're currently starring in the hit show The Goldbergs, where you play Principal Ball. Are you enjoying the stability of a TV show rather than traveling for movies? Yeah, well, TV show, well, The Goldbergs is, I enjoy The Goldbergs. Some television shows, you know, I don't care for, but Goldbergs, not only is the cast excellent, again, everybody is the best of the best. The, the people who get props for you, the people who do the lighting, the camera, the sound, they're all so good. And they make <clears throat> and they make the experience quite wonderful. So I love that it, it, you're really working with a bunch of great professionals on the Goldbergs. So I've I've loved that show. And sometimes you know, on a TV show, you don't have that. Mm. You, you know, and and everybody is just fighting to try to just get it done any way you can, but. Goldberg's was a wonderful show. As I mentioned, Deadwood, amazing talent. Californication, amazing talent uh, around the camera. So, and Silicon Valley, amazing talent there. So I was able to move like between different TV shows, which is a nice stability. And a lot of it is the fact that they're all at Sony Studio and the casting director knows me. And the president of Sony knows me, and they go like, oh, well, let's just put Steven in. And so that works out nicely. So I'd go to Sony and do a scene from the Goldbergs, run, do a scene from Schooled, then go over and do a scene from Silicon Valley, and you know, just moving around like in the old days. So it's, it's, it's been great. I, I, I've been extremely lucky with, with that. Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think you've been on core of your enthusiasm. Why not? I only did it once, right? <laughs> you were on it. I yeah. was on Curb Your Enthusiasm once. Okay, and, so uh, what, was, what was that like? It was like, well, I ended up loving it because you have no script. Yeah. They they come up and they I know they show you like a piece of paper like this. I know it, this you're not seeing the video, but just as a sentence on it. And it says, you are arguing with Larry about what someone wants to eat for dinner. That's it. That's all you got. And so you go and they show you where they want you to stand and you just make stuff up. And then uh, Larry Charles, who was directing our episodes, he'll tell you the stuff they liked. Well, we like this, this, this. Keep that. Now add something more here, there, there, there. And so it just all comes together. The one person who kind of has their hands on the rain, you know, has the rain is Larry. Larry knows what the whole show is going to be. He knows so he can guide it. 
But the rest of us, like Jeff Garland, all of us, you know, we're just all just swimming around in there. But I only did one of them, but I loved it. I loved doing it. How do you keep your shit together when you just, you see some scenes where you can see a crack of a smile and you might cut where you broke down. Is it hard to keep it together when you're having a debate with Larry David? Well, it it depends. you, You know, for me, it was fine because the problem I was having with Larry was he cheated my son. Yeah, we it was uh, the Passover episode, and uh, and he cheated and told his son where the Afakoman was, which is the the uh, matzah that, that if a kid finds it, he gets a special prize. And Larry cheated, and and he was telling his son, and so I'm angry at Larry in this, but I play Jeff's brother-in-law, is what I play on the show. But it was it was great fun doing it. I just loved it, but. You know, nobody does a show like that where you, where you have no script. That's crazy. Crazy. Well, Stephen, we could literally talk to you all night. We'd have only, to let you we, we, Yeah, we've so, only you've been so just good. scratched, literally scratched the surface. There's not too many episodes or, you know, interviews where we think to ourselves, there should be a part two, but we're not going to go down there. But we, we have a question that we finish all of our interviews on, Stephen. Okay. And it's, it's Last Orders at the Last Chance Saloon. There's a jukebox in the corner. You've a dollar bill in your pocket. You get to pick one song. What's the last song Stephen Tobolowski ever wants to hear? The last song I want to hear. Wow. Um, the last song I want to hear. How about The Pretender? Uh, it, it's such a great song. I'll get up in the morning. Uh, um, the Pretender. Who sings that, Stephen? So we can rule it. That you. is, and and the version I like. I'm 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 pulling this. Up. Yeah, you find it first because we can get that sorted. Yeah, I'd hate to play like the Great Pretender or something wrong. And you come back and say no, that's no, not the no. Song. I can I can let you answer the question again. The Pretender boy. <laughs> the Pretender is by Jackson Brown, but there he wrote it and he sang it. But there are a couple versions of the pretender one version is the one he did as a record and it's got it's fairly slick but there's one that he just does with the piano solo myself from kieran from mark our editor and all at the electricity take a team to say that we are delighted that you you took time out of your busy schedule to come and sit with us is an understatement stephen tobolowski thank you Thank you, guys. Thank you so much, and love to everybody there in Dublin. I'm going to rent myself a house in the shade of the freeway. Gonna pack my lunch in the morning And go to work each day And when the evening rolls around I'll go home and lay my body down And when the morning light comes streaming in I'll get up and do it again oh.